you know, it's really not about me. Like, yeah. I mean, I get these kinds of angry emails for all sorts of reasons, but sure. what I'm, it's, yeah, but it's been a bit more concerning that um, they've taken on this very specific trend, right? Yeah. Very an specific anti-Asian trend. That's mm -hmm. more, I'm more concerned about the folks who are out there who maybe don't have a platform the way that I do to bring attention to it, right? This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Collar, I am joined by one of British Columbia's most popular members of the Legislative Assembly. She is a licensed professional engineer. In fact, in 2008, the Engineering Undergraduate Society of UBC created an award in her namesake. She also holds a master's degree from the UBC Sauter School of Business. She was enrolled in the Canadian Armed Regular Forces. She has worked as a geological technician. She managed terminal expansion and redevelopment projects at Vancouver International Airport. And as a project management professional, she provided consultation work in the higher education and public health care sectors. We could go on and on. Her resume is incredible. In 2018, she launched and led the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project as the Parliamentary Secretary for TransLink. She also serves on several cabinet and parliamentary committees. Of course, you know her as the NDP MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale as elected in May 2017. She is Bowen Ma. Bowen, how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered, first off. Thank you for those kind words. I think they're too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's your resume. I actually, it pained me to cut so much out. I didn't want to upset you that I cut, you know, some of your other achievements out on that intro. Oh, no, don't worry. I think you did a great <laughs> job. Thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for being here through the magic of Zoom. I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. I do want to talk politics first before we get to some of the COVID stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, Bowen, my dad, Mo Sr., says that the BC Liberals are wasting their time in your neighborhood because Bowen Ma is unbeatable in North Vancouver Lonsdale. Is he right? Or did he just jinx your re-election campaign? Well, I mean, I certainly appreciate the the show of support, um, I, <laughs> I, I think. Um, but no, I mean, it, this is a target seat for the Liberals for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and they've made that clear. Uh, I mean, even before COVID, I was targeted a lot by the BC Liberals. And uh, I, I don't think that they're wrong to target this seat. Uh, I mean, I'm the first BC NDP MLA to win a seat on the North Shore mm -hmm. that's between four, uh, sorry, in, in a very long time, since 1991. So that's four provincial ridings, three federal ridings in out of the seven senior levels of government worth of ridings since 1991, um, wow. I'm the first to win. And I'm actually only the, the third NDP MLA to serve a community on the North Shore since World War II. <laughs> wow. Very exclusive company. Um, so, I mean, history says that I will probably lose my seat at the next election, honestly. Um, so I'm focused on working as hard as possible for my community in the time that I have. And 
if I do lose my seat, I really hope that it's because the people have found someone better to represent them and not because the BC Liberals have destroyed me with a dirty campaign. <laughs> but I mean, if honestly, I am also quite glad that the BC Liberals seem to be actually caring about this riding because mm-hmm. I've heard from so many community members that they just didn't feel served under the BC Liberals, that their MLA wasn't around a lot, that the North Shore wasn't getting the investments they needed. Um, mm. And if if on top of the work that I've done in the four years, four and a half years that I have the honor of serving this community, my hope is that whoever comes after me will also recognize how important it is to to really listen to the community and serve them. Sure. So just to be clear, in the very high unlikelihood that you lose your seat, you're not going to blame it on Mo Senior for jinxing it. <laughs> No, I think, uh, <laughs> although, I mean, most senior, maybe he, he'd be interested in coming out to volunteer for me so that we he might have a chance to hold the seat. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have a chance to hold the seat for sure, but it's, it's not a done deal. It, mm-hmm. it will take a lot of hard work, just the way that it took, um, it took a lot of hard work in the first time round in 2017. It'll, it'll take a lot of hard work again. Did you feel the pressure from the start? Cause I know that before COVID, there were postcard campaigns in that riding, and it seems like they had already kind of locked their targets on that riding. Um, I think I've always felt the pressure out here in mm-hmm. the North Shore. And it it isn't necessarily pressure that's been put on me by the BC Liberals, although that certainly uh, doesn't make me feel great. Uh, but I understand, you know, there this is part of what a democracy is. Sure. Know, um, so people have to have the opportunity to to vote for their representative. But I think that the, the greater pressure I felt serving here as an MLA for North Vancouver is that being the first NDP uh, MLA in so long made me feel an extra obligation to not screw it up. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's... Yeah, I want to be able to demonstrate that that a new Democrat MLA can serve the North Shore very well. And mm-hmm. I don't want the reason. If if the if the community of North Vancouver Lawn still decides not to elect me to to serve them again for a second term, I don't want to be the reason why they decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to make sure that I've done everything that I can to to do my best for them. Sure. Now, I know you've been keeping very busy, but out of curiosity, did you hear Andrew Wilkinson on this program last month? Um, I have heard segments of Andrew Wilkinson on the program last month, yes. What did you think of his aggressive stance towards Premier John Horgan and then later on in in the episode towards Ginny Sims? Oh, geez. I mean, Mo, I think that you have a fantastic ability to bring out a person's true colors on your podcast. (laughs) And I think that these are good. uh, It's good for the public to hear more about what politicians are like when they're when they're allowed to show themselves more because they're the ones who are ultimately going to decide whether or not they want someone like Andrew Wilkinson as their premier uh, or someone like John Horgan, who is likable, down-to-earth, honest, compassionate, but firm. Uh, He's like the province's dad. And podcasts like yours demonstrate how, how different Andrew Wilkinson is from all of that. And so you've made a bit of a contrast, but you didn't actually describe your interpretation of how... Andrew Wilkinson came off 
in that podcast? I I don't like Andrew Wilkinson very much personally, so I I try not to I, I try not to denigrate people personally. I think that every politician, every elected official uh, serves an important role for their community. Uh, <laughs> but I personally would not want to be represented by someone like like Andrew. Um, and I certainly, per- I personally would not want someone like him to lead the province. And this sounds like it's personal as opposed to just ideological for you. Um, you know, there are certainly, I mean, you've definitely caught me there. I'm trying to be gentle here. <laughs> I'm trying to be compassionate and I'm trying to be generous, uh, but I have some serious, serious issues with a lot of the policies that that the BC Liberals have uh, represent and certainly the policies that Andrew Wilkinson represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I've not been shy about criticizing the BC Liberals um, and occasionally naming Andrew Wilkinson as the leader there, uh, it's... I also recognize that there is definitely a uh, a portion of the population that Andrew Wilkinson speaks to. So if you are somebody who is very wealthy, um, yeah, like I would understand why why Andrew Wilkinson would would kind of speak to you that way, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> Do you think he's an improvement on the previous leadership for the BC Liberals or about the same or worse? I think he's different. From a personality perspective, Christy Clark had a lot going on for her. Um, but from a policy perspective, I am equally displeased by this, uh, by many of the stances that, uh, that today's BC Liberals have taken in comparison to Christy Clark's BC Liberals. And I mean, I was no flat fan of Christy Clark either. It's she's actually the reason why I decided to leave my professional career and decide and become a politician, which I think is uh, saying a lot. And that makes it personal, right? Like that's a personal decision that you took on. It's more than just ideology at that point, right? Uh, it's and when I say personal, we have to re- recognize that politics is personal for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, politics impacts everyone. And so when when the BC Liberals were making uh, decisions around public education that were directly impacting my godchildren and my nieces and nephews and the children of friends, uh, that might be a policy decision, but the impact is very, very personal. Mm-hmm. So when, my, when I decided to run for the BC NDP uh, in an effort to remove the BC Liberals from office. It wasn't because I disliked people personally. It wasn't because I disliked um, the leadership personally. Mm-hmm. It was because their decisions were impacting the people that I cared about in a very personal way. Right. And so they were harming a lot of the people that I believe governments are there to to serve and defend and protect Mm -hmm. uh, vulnerable people, uh, families with children who are struggling to make ends meet, uh, families with elders who are in long-term care centers who are grossly under uh, underfunded. Those were the kinds of concerns that led me to, to give up my, um, 
my professional career, which was very good for me personally. Sure. Uh, to and decide to actually serve the broader community in the way that I've done today. Well, I'm glad you made that decision because I think unofficially you were probably the savviest MLA on social media. And I noticed that a lot of MLAs try to copy what you do, but usually to much poorer results. How do you view social media? Because I think you understand something that most politicians have yet to grasp with these platforms. Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. And I wonder, I wonder who, what kind of copying you're referring to. Um, do you, do you have any examples? <laughs> I recall an example where I think in, it was either a minute or two minutes, you took a walk and described the NDP's accomplishments. And then someone, another MLA, clapped back and they did a, a very similar thing and it was not well received. <laughs> well, you know, I, I never took a single selfie until I decided to run for politics, believe it or not. Hmm. Uh, and I hated selfies before I got into to politics, as in for me. I mean, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't a problem for me to see other people take selfies, but I could not bring myself to take a selfie. Sure. But when I, de- when I decided to run for politics, I learned very quickly that it wasn't enough for me to work hard and do the work. I also needed to communicate what it was that I was doing so mm. that people knew, especially the people that I serve, knew that I was working hard for them. Um, and so that they could provide me feedback about the other sorts of things that they wanted me to do. Right. Uh, I, I I do, though, I, I feel like I spend way too much time on social media, especially now during COVID-19. Uh, but it's also important to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways for MLAs to communicate with their community um, events and being out on the street. I, I do those as well. But I remember the days of my life before I got really involved in politics and how a lot of my time was really, I mean, a lot of my energy was spent uh, going to work. Uh, commuting there and back, trying mm. to find some time to uh, to take care of myself, to take care of my family, and and most of the time I was exhausted from working all the time. Going to see friends was was already quite difficult, and so I remember what it was like to not be constantly engaged in politics. And I think that sometimes politicians maybe forget what that's like and how difficult it can be for your average person who is trying to pay the bills to stay on top of what is going on politically in their province. And so I, I try to use social media as a way to reach out to people in uh, where they are. Mm-hmm. So, but it is a tricky communications tool. You have to be careful, very careful with text-based communita- communication, especially Twitter, when you only have 280 characters to work with. And oftentimes, we're trying to fit so much into a short post. Uh, a, a simple tweet that looks like you could type it out in 30 seconds can sometimes actually be something that I've worked on for days. Sure. Just to make sure that I'm not communicating what, or that I am communicating what I intend to communicate. And I think that goes a long way, and it it's what makes you so effective on social media. I mean, you do have tweets or posts that are funny, and you have posts or communication that is very personal, that can be emotional. 
and you also make politics quite accessible. And, and that's sort of what I'm getting at is I feel like there are, and this goes across political stripes. This is not, you know, looking at one party in particular, but I think there are politicians in this country that see social media as kind of like, okay, I have to, you know, tick it off my list of things to do. Whereas you put in a lot of consideration, a lot of thought, and we almost get a sense of your personality through social media, whereas we probably don't with a lot of other politicians, probably because they're a bit older and and maybe they're not as comfortable or they don't know how to use it as well. Yeah, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons uh, why my social media comes across differently. I think that one main, uh, main, I guess, key to to my social media is that I do all of my social media myself. Mm. So whereas there may be some MLAs that that uh, have staff help them out with it, uh, I I don't. Every everything I put out is something that I've personally written or something that I at the very least have personally approved. Sure. I have to go back to him. Last year on the program, Andrew Wilkinson's first appearance on this podcast, he specifically called you out and he said, and this is a quote from him, you have unrestricted viciousness all over the web every day. What is your response to that after you just told me that you're trying to be kind and gentle and compassionate? Uh, I, Well, I mean, I think that given some of the complaints I've heard him make, I can probably conclude that Andrew Wilkinson is quite a fragile person and that maybe, um, well, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on my social media. Am I being (laughs) unrestrictively vicious? I mean, I'm open to, I'm open to criticism for sure. Smart move, Bowen. You're turning it on me. You know, you know what? No, I, I think you're funny. I think your humor is well-timed and, to be honest, wholesome. Like, you'll take jabs at people for sure, but I don't think it's ever anything that's nasty or toxic or has underlying meanness to it. I Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, because I actually do try really hard to criticize ideas rather than, than the individuals. Um, I avoid... I do avoid attacking individual MLAs with the exception of naming Andrew Wilkinson, because I believe that as the leader of the party, um, he, he should be willing to stand by all of the positions that the party takes and, and be responsible for, for the actions of his MLAs as well. Um, but I will defend myself too. So there have been several occasions when liberal MLAs have called me out specifically or twisted my words around or so forth. And I will defend myself uh, but generally speaking, I, if you look through all of my tweets, I actually av- very much avoid targeting individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and my criticisms, my public criticisms of Andrew Wilkinson have a lot more to do with what he stands for than who he is as an individual. Um, and I mean, earlier on, you asked about kind of the, his you know, his personality and, and what do you think of his aggressive stance? I think that there is something to his personality that I also find distasteful and, and distrustful, but um, more important than that, it's 
what he what his policies would do to British Columbians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think that a lot of them would would harm the average British Columbian a lot. Now, I want to go back to something you said about other MLAs tweeting about you, tweeting at you, or criticizing you. I've seen MLAs do that. One that comes to mind is Mary Polak, and I've seen other BC Liberals scold you on your social media use. And I can't help but feel like there's a tinge of jealousy that they don't understand how your tweets and your social media can sometimes catch fire and get popular, and theirs only gets shared within their own circle and doesn't really make a splash. And maybe you don't want to say that word, but do you think that there's a tinge of jealousy that, you know, here there is this young rookie MLA, and she's able to connect with people in a way that they are simply incapable? Oh, I mean, if if there is... I would encourage them not to be jealous. I mean, every, oh no, realistically though, I mean, every MLA is very accomplished in their own right. They all serve their communities. It's a, it's an honorable role. And I, I, I'm cautious about being too critical about how specific MLAs serve their communities because I believe that to some extent, everyone is trying to do their best, even Mm -hmm. if I disagree with them politically. Uh, but it's also diff- about different tools for different MLAs. I have seen um, BC, BC Liberal MLAs run amazing events for seniors in, in their community, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't been able to pull something like that off. So yes, maybe, I'll, maybe I have a, a bit of a better reach on social media than them. But I mean, uh, yeah, I've seen different MLAs from all over the province reach out to their communities in ways that I wish I could do as well. Have you ever gotten in trouble for something that you've posted online as an MLA? Uh, oh, my tweets have shown up in BC Liberal attacks during question period a number of times. Um, and I- I'm a little bit surprised because uh, they, well, they raise it like their own shit don't stink, you know? I'm actually surprised by by how shameless they are about it often. Yeah. I I know that their MLAs also say incredibly ludicrous things online. And if I were them, I might be concerned about throwing rocks in a glass house, throwing stones in a glass house. Uh, I mean, I don't mind having things that I've said challenged. Mm -hmm. I, I... mean what I say, and I try to say what I mean, although I admit that sometimes my tweets, um, you know, don't across, come across the exact way that I meant, because it, and that can cause problems, and I certainly regret that. Uh, in tweets especially, one wrong word can unintentionally impact the tone of a tweet, and then I end up kicking myself for half the day afterwards for being careless, but those are learning experiences. Uh, Generally speaking, though, I'm okay with liberals being unhappy, uh, BC liberals being unhappy with things that I say, so long as the things that I'm saying are representative of the way that the community I represent feels. Mm -hmm. Have you ever gotten in trouble with the premier or your own party saying, oh, maybe you shouldn't have tweeted that or maybe you shouldn't have responded to this? 
<laughs> well, I, again, everyone uses different tools available to them in different ways. I do get the feeling that sometimes um, maybe folks in my camp uh, get the impression that I'm very careless with my social media when hmm. it actually couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, like I said, some a tweet that might have taken 30 seconds to type could have very well sat in my draft draft tweets uh, sticky note for, for a few days while I thought over whether or not this was what I really wanted to say. Um, sure. And... And that's just a part of being, you know, my own unique person. So, uh, I, I mean, you asked about Premier John Horgan. Premier John Horgan is a fantastic leader who recognizes that he is leading a very diverse team mm-hmm. with, uh, with different tools in their toolbox to use in communicating with their community members. Uh, and so, no, he's actually been very supportive Okay. You did say that you feel like sometimes people within your own camp might see you as careless. Is that just something that you intuit or have people actually asked you or or told you something about it? Mm. I think that maybe it, um, it lends itself to what you were, what you were saying earlier, Mo, about maybe some, maybe some folks don't really understand social media. Mm. Um, And uh, a, a different, I mean, a different way to look at it too is that I think I present myself uh, very differently online than than other politicians do. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency for politicians to be viewed as um, people who are, uh, well, I don't know. Well, actually, they, they're viewed in all sorts of ways now that I'm thinking <laughs> about it, uh, but. But they're not usually viewed as somebody who is my neighbor, you know, that person down the street. They're one of us. They're, and and it's important to me that I present myself as just a regular person mm-hmm. who is in this role, absolutely, and I have a responsibility, an important responsibility in this role to uh, to serve my community the best way that I can. But at the end of the day, I am just a person. Mm-hmm. I am not perfect. I, I don't always get things right, and I'm willing to learn from my mistakes and learn from other people. Uh, I think that that's maybe, uh, it's maybe a level of accessibility that isn't always seen and, and could, be, uh, could be seen as a bit different. Yeah. And I would agree with you. Uh, you know, in my opinion... I think it's hard to deny that part of your popularity stems from being a very genuine person. And I know that kind of sounds dumb or cliche, but I think a lot of elected officials really like to curate their image like an avatar and they don't let people into their lives. And you, on the other hand, you have been very open with your struggles, with your opinions. You've shared some very heavy things about yourself, including, you know, going public about having an eating disorder. You haven't shied away from being vulnerable. And I think that's resonated with a lot of folks, including myself. And this isn't even a question. I actually just wanted to say that I appreciate that. And I hope that we see more of that in our politics. I think that we are seeing more of that in our politics, too. I mean, I think of of MLA Melanie Mark. 
and mm-hmm. where she came from, indigenous woman who survived sexual and physical abuse growing up, fighting for her life on the streets, and now she's a minister of the crown. Mm-hmm. I, I think of MLA Raj Chohan, who saw the ter- terrible conditions that farm workers labored in and mortgaged his own house to help finance organizing for farm workers' rights. Mm-hmm. And how MLA Katrina Chen, now Minister of State for Childcare, she shared uh, her background of working multiple jobs to try to make ends meet with a partner who gave up his career in order to ca- in order to care for their child because they couldn't f- find childcare. Mm-hmm. And Premier John Horgan is often talking about um, being the youngest of four and being raised by a single mother. I think that people need to know that their elected officials understand what it's like to be a regular person, mm-hmm. what, it's, what it's like to try to earn a living, to struggle, to pay the rent, and how to, and that they know how to know about getting through life without a nanny to care for their kids, <laughs> you know? Like, and, how, and that's important because how else are elected officials supposed to get it? How else are we supposed to know to think of, of different um, people in their different circumstances while we're governing the province. And I certainly want people to feel heard. And one of the ways that I do that is to share with them those aspects of my life that I hope will make them feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of my colleagues have actually really opened up their lives in that way as well. So it's not just me, um, but I appreciate your, your, your feedback on that. Let's talk about the anti-racism video that you just made. It went viral. It caught a lot of attention. And as you noted, most of us understand that hate crimes and overt racism is wrong. But you went deeper to point out that those actions are just the tip of the iceberg and that we all have internal biases. Can you explain exactly what that means? I I know it was just like a two-minute video, but... I think there are some people who are still unfamiliar with this idea of subconscious biases or internal biases. For sure. Um, and one of the ways for me to do this, because recognizing that racism, especially right now, can be a very triggering topic for people, mm-hmm. um, both those who are on the receiving end, but also those who might have been uh, guilty of, of doing something that somebody else has said, hey, that's not cool. It's actually a little bit racist. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, I'm actually going to try to, well, let's let's imagine. So I'm going to use another scenario. And let's imagine your podcast goes completely massive and you need to hire someone to run the business for you. Okay, Mo, so you're going to hire a CEO to run This Is Band Color and you're interviewing people. Sure. So you're doing interviews. Somebody walks in. Uh, they're late. They show up in a scruffy hair and a jacket that doesn't match their pants. Yeah, uh, they haven't shaved in a while. There's some spaghetti stuck to their cheek, and they don't—they <laughs> don't look at you in the eyes when they talk. And when you go to shake their hand, because imagine this is post or maybe even pre-COVID, and you're allowed yeah. to shake hands, um, you sh- go to shake their hand, and it's just like a limp, wet handshake. Yeah. Okay. What are your impressions of this person right now? I mean, just based on that alone, without having talked to this person. I think the spaghetti thing probably puts them out of the running of that position. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, so those are your impressions of this person and they haven't even opened their mouth yet. 
Yeah. I've told you nothing about their resume, nothing about their work history, or maybe how absolutely crazy brilliant they are at making podcasts like yours, an international mm-hmm. hit. And I mean, you've already uh, generated some impressions of them. Now, there are a heck of a lot of attributes that I could list that would further evoke different feelings. And a mm-hmm. lot of those attributes are protected attributes. So attributes that you're not allowed to discriminate against uh, their race, their language, their accent, the way they're, they dress, their sex, their gender, the size, their, the mm-hmm. way that they walk. Uh, but, but if something like spaghetti stuck to a person's face for the 30 minutes that they're in an interview with you is enough to sway your opinion on them, <laughs> It would be really foolish to pretend that we're not also making judgments about people based on things beyond their control. And yeah. those are the types of things that we need to be aware of so that we're not allowing those prejudgments or those prejudices to cloud how we treat them, how we uh, think of them, and uh, you know whether or not they actually get the job. Now, some of these, some of these impressions will are okay for you to, to make judgments based off of. If you want, uh, like, uh, you know, if if they do terribly during the interview, I understand. However, those protected attributes, they may impact the way you see them, but you cannot allow them to actually impact your decision. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very, very hard to police, right? And it isn't something that you do because you're a bad person. I really want us to move away from making bias about being a bad human being. And give space for people to actually recognize that they're not perfect. Because when Mm. we start to acknowledge the parts of us that we need to be aware of, that's when we can finally get around to addressing them. That's when we can open ourselves up to feedback to help us improve ourselves. And internal bias exists as unconscious bias for most people. Um, When they are biases, they don't even realize exists. Yeah. And it takes a concerted effort to monitor how how a person's behavior is being influenced by our unconscious bias in order for us to recognize them. And I mean, some of the questions that people ask are, well, are we born with these biases? Um, I, I mean, maybe some of it. We probably learn we probably learn to size people up pretty young in order to keep ourselves safe. But mm-hmm. a lot of the biases that we develop are based on what we've learned throughout our lives. We're actually socialized into it. So how did women, how were women treated in movies and how did TV shows portray black people? Mm. Uh, how much respect did the adults in your life give to doctors and lawyers in comparison to grocery store clerks and bus boys? And how did police response to crimes involving indigenous people impact the way that we view indigenous people or vice versa right so that's what i mean by internal biases they are the parts of us that help uh, that generally help humans organize their thoughts so that we're responding more quickly but when those biases are based on on attributes that we've recognized as human rights to not be discriminated against for that's when we really need to pay attention and make Mm -hmm. sure that we're not letting it cloud ourselves. And so just to be clear, these biases, would you say, manifest themselves in terms of wage gaps, whether that's between genders or between different races or even height? You know, there's a there's a wage gap between how how tall a, a man is compared to a shorter man. 
is this what you mean? Like we we have these biases and they come out in a way, and then when you look at other data, you realize that okay, maybe there is prejudice, whether it's out of hatred or just an internal bias. Yes, I. That's exactly what I mean. Um, a lot of these biases will, in turn, not they they don't only impact us as individuals. They also, in turn, impact our entire social structure and the entire system. It it can influence who has political po- power and who doesn't. And it's that systemic structure that keeps us from having a truly equal society. Even if we, as individual humans, are starting to consciously recognize what's happening mm-hmm. and how unfairly certain groups have been treated, um, unfortunately our laws, our policies, the way we do things can still hold certain groups back. And it's a, it's a, an effort that we all have to consistently put forward in order to, in order to move. Like, like we have to put a concerted effort to actually improve things overall for people. Sure. So what does institutional bias or subconscious bias look like in government? Um, so, I mean, there's, well, I mean, <laughs> let me help answer this question again by by kind of going uh, using a parallel example. Sure. Um, maybe a different form of bias uh, that is a little less charged than racism, uh, sexism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just a little bit less charged. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the first time in Canada's history, we have not only a gender-balanced cabinet, but also a gender-balanced government caucus. Mm-hmm. And we are currently bringing in one of the most substantial new social programs in this pro- that this province has seen in decades, and that is childcare, universal childcare. Mm. Not only is it a huge economic problem, but it's also a huge social program. Uh, pardon me. Not only is it a huge economic program, it is also a huge social program. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, it's it overwhelmingly benefits women who have, since the beginning of the existence of British Columbia as we know it, been the ones to be in more vulnerable financial situations, um, more vulnerable financial positions within a family and within the society. And the studies all show that this is the case. Like you mentioned, women make um, have a tendency to make less money than men. Uh, women's careers tend to suffer when they have children, even while they continue working. Mm-hmm. Whereas in contrast, it's shown that men's careers actually take off when they have children. Hmm. Um, the, so without access to childcare, women are far more likely than men to give up their careers and give up their, uh, you know, their yeah their career trajectory they they are more likely to carry a greater burden of um of care so they're they're more likely to take responsibility for more of the child's care than men right so childcare is a huge deal to help families but particularly women to not have to choose between working and providing care for their children mm-hmm. um, but do you believe that childcare would be implemented right now in BC if women were not represented in the BC legislature and did not make up such a huge part of the government. Like if there were no women MLAs in the legislature in every party. I think there would be significantly less likelihood of it being passed. Yeah. Yes. Significantly less. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like maybe, maybe, right? But I have yeah. a really hard time believing it. Sure. But 
that's the kind of sea change that happens when there's representation of different perspectives in the legislature. As uh, another example, several months ago, the BC government mandated that public schools had to make menstrual products, uh, free menstrual products available in bathrooms. And a few months before that, there was a debate in the chambers, in the BC legislature chambers, between two men, Andrew Weaver and Minister Shane Simpson, Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. And mm -hmm. they were debating in support of the availability of menstrual products for women. And hmm. Shane Simpson, I remember, he said, we all expect when we enter a public washroom that toilet paper is readily available and free. Why that isn't the case for menstrual products is a very good question. One, I suspect that if men had a menstrual cycle, we wouldn't be asking today. <laughs> so that is what he said. Yeah. So their awareness changed because there's been a blind spot forever, but now they're able to see more of it because they're learning from the presence of women in the chambers. And this happens in companies as well, where they learn from the presence of women around the table, different perspectives that maybe they didn't consider. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with sex and gender, but it happens with any other group that is un underrepresented in the house. So oftentimes we have a blind spot about what we're missing until we actually get those voices represented. So what happens when it comes to race, ethnicity, or culture? What have we seen structurally? Like in Canada, we've seen things like the Chinese head tax. Mm -hmm. out, in, out in Quebec, we see, uh, we see it manifest, like the lack of representation and kind of that structural, um, that structural systemic racism. We've seen it in Quebec as a ban on hijabs and head coverings. Mm -hmm. uh, and across Canada, we see it as Indigenous children being taken away from their families and communities at far, far, far higher rates than anyone else. And we see it as missing, murdered, and Indigenous women where women and girls were a commission, like a public commission found that missing Indigenous women cases were simply not taken as serious issues by authorities. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was a white woman who went missing, police would put in, pull out all the stops to try to find them. But when it was an Indigenous woman, especially one with other vulnerabilities, the cases were just cast aside as unimportant. But yeah. Like somebody's difficult past or someone's heritage some uh, doesn't make a person any less worthy of being loved, of being cared for, um, they're any less loved by their families, and certainly uh, doesn't make their lives any less worthy of dignity or justice. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that we end up seeing structurally. Now, you know that there are going to be people who say, who listen to all of that and that eloquent explanation and they're going to say, I'm colorblind. I'm genderblind. I don't have any internal biases. I treat people as equals. And this is too much nitpicking. And, you know, it's taking us away from a meritocracy. How do you respond to people like that? Well, I mean, I certainly appreciate the sentiment. I really do. And maybe there are people out there who really, really don't have any internal biases, but I suspect it's actually more likely an absence of awareness of themselves. And that mm. is that the internal biases are still very much subconscious and they haven't learned to recognize it yet, which actually makes it even more difficult for those individuals to recognize when they're being discriminatory. Yeah. 
the other problem with saying that you're colorblind is that the reality of the world is that the world isn't. So being colorblind, so to speak, means that you might not be able to recognize injustice when you see it and therefore mm-hmm. not able and therefore are unable to help us fight it. But I think that people say that they're colorblind because they believe that harboring any sort of bias or or race-based biases in particular makes them a very bad person and they don't want to be seen as a bad person. And what I'm trying to do is give space for people to recognize that it's okay not to be perfect and acknowledging our faults is how we actually start to address them. Yeah. And I think you make a good point is that even if someone is, let's say they are colorblind, it doesn't excuse the institutional or structural biases that we see, whether that's across gender or race or social income bracket that clearly exist when you look at, you know, I mean, we've had a Supreme Court of Canada case, which there was a ruling where they said it was the Lee case. I can't remember which year it was, but it was recent. And they said police treat non-white individuals differently than they treat white individuals. So I I would agree with you there. And I, and I just kind of laugh when I hear that um, because it's not even about the individual, but it does become about the actual structure, right? I think that's a fair way to describe it, yeah. In a CTV interview, and you were talking about this anti-racism video that, that you just did, you said, and this is a quote here, What you say is as much about what other people take from what you said as it is what you personally meant. Now, while I agree with the idea that having a large platform comes with a larger responsibility, is it fair to pin the interpretation or actions of a minority of people to what someone says? Um, I think, now, I mean, the the quote was meant uh, in particular to express how important it is for celebrities, for politicians, for media personalities, for anyone with a very large platform to be very mm-hmm. careful about how they express themselves so that they're not laying blame in ways that enable racism or mm-hmm. other types of uh, prejudice or hate crimes. and. And it's about responsibility and recognizing your your responsibility. It's about asking yourself as a celebrity, as a politician, or as a media personality, do you care about the health of your society? Do you care? Do you believe that hate crimes are not a part of a healthy society? And if so, are you taking the necessary steps to make sure that you're expressing yourselves in ways that don't exacerbate an already tense situation. So, I mean, that that video and um, and the quote and the interview were centered around comments that Brian Adams had said mm-hmm, on right. his Instagram. And I don't want to make it about Brian Adams, I just want to be clear, but he had used some language that was very racially tra- uh, charged. And mm-hmm. a lot of his supporters will say that they don't believe he was trying to incite racism. And that may have well been the case. Uh, but my my call is for people in his position to recognize how influential their their words can be and to be thoughtful about how they express themselves, uh, especially when when we're seeing some some pretty tense times in um, racially already. 
Absolutely. And I, I appreciate you contextualizing that, that quote as well. I should have done that at the start. And I think I agree with you largely. I, I just think when that quote is taken in isolation, it becomes almost a slippery slope because I see people criticizing someone like Global's Sam Cooper. And they're saying it's, you know, racist love his reporting or it's racist enabling. And I really don't think that's fair. And, and you've touched on this, I think, just within the hour you were tweeting about there being this, not a fine line, but this really big distinction between criticizing uh, a government or some sort of social organization and conflating that to the broader swath uh, of a population, whether that's race or geography or whatever else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have to be able to criticize governments and regimes and um, or practices without necessarily grouping, uh, without without personally blaming everyone who looks like they might be of of a heritage from a place where you think that these bad things are happening. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a difference between saying. Um, unsanitary conditions and the sale of endangered exotic animals for consumption at a wet market in Wuhan may have enabled the first human infection of COVID-19. And saying that wet markets, which has unfortunately become a word associated specifically to to Chinese wet markets, uh, because Westerners don't realize that farmers markets are actually wet markets as well. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between saying that and saying that these Chinese wet markets are unsanitary and they're bat eating ways or why we are in a global pandemic now. Right. Like, like there's a very different tone and it's a, and in one, in, in, in the ways that we are able, I think that, we have a responsibility as people with platforms and, and people who are listening to us to be careful about how we are leveling that criticism so mm-hmm. that it is directed where it needs to be directed and not um, not spill over into, into the general population. So whereas the former, the way I described it earlier, um, the former identifies a scenario that is problematic and needs to be fixed. Yeah. The latter suggests that an entire people and their culture are the problem and they need to be fixed. Mm-hmm. That's that there's somehow something particularly wrong about people in that group. And that enables anger towards anyone who looks like they might be Chinese. Uh, so, I mean, we, ha- we have to be careful about it. And there, and we know that there are ways to do this because I mean, like we don't call I, well, think about mad cow disease, okay? Do you remember mm-hmm. mad cow disease? It came out of the UK in the 80s and 90s and was yeah. based, based on a practice where cattle were fed to other dead cows and sheep. Like, it's, yeah. really, it's really gross, okay? Yeah. It, I mean, like that, it doesn't say a ton about the animal husbandry practices there either, but I don't remember a sudden wave of hate crimes against anyone who might have looked like they had heritage in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. We don't call mad cow disease like UK disease. Right. The Spanish flu, I learned this recently, actually might have come from Kansas based on okay. Christians. <laughs> and and we don't call nuclear bombs America bombs. Right. right. So there are ways for us to criticize, critique, to um uh to basically talk about these very important issues we need to talk about without 
making it uh, without enabling racism. No, I completely agree. And I think it's one of those things that people of color see more than the white population. And I am making a generalization here, but I know from my own experience, you know, I come from Muslim ancestry. I don't practice myself, but most of my family does. And growing up in a post 9-11 world, I could tell the difference between someone criticizing terrorists, terrorist groups, or governments versus what they were saying that would blanket the entire Muslim population. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I became very sensitive to that growing up as a teenager because I could sense what the difference is that you're speaking of as well. And I still see it today. You know, people treat the Muslim populace as it's a monolithic group. I heard someone say, like, oh, um, you know, Vancouver has the most archaic liquor laws next to the entire Muslim world. And I'm just like, have you have you seen the parties in Lebanon? Like they, you know, <laughs> you know, and there's Turkey and there's and there's other places. Dubai is a great example as well. So I I know exactly what you're talking about. I just find that perhaps someone who has not experienced it personally, it is very difficult to explain that nuance. And I don't even think it's a nuance, but I think for them it's it's a nuance. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that people who have experienced discrimination for attributes that they cannot control um, will be will definitely be able to recognize it when it's being leveled against other groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and part of that is just your lived experience. Yeah, I want to shift gears here. I want to talk about more about your age group, I guess. You are a millennial. You're finishing up your rookie term as an MLA. As most Senior says, you are unbeatable so long as you want to be there. Are there things that have come as a shock to you in your first term as an MLA or maybe things that just had a much steeper learning curve than you anticipated? Um, Well, I certainly didn't expect to be governing during a pandemic. (laughs) That was very shocking, I think. For all of us. Yes. (laughs) But, um, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and and I'm actually surprised at how much positive change we've been able to do so quickly. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. obviously more to do, but a lot of it happened way faster than I expected. As, again, coming from a background that wasn't necessarily very politically aware until um, much later in my adult years, I remember what I thought of politics and politicians. Mm. I, I remember thinking of governments as really slow moving and nothing ever changes and politicians don't, uh, you know, all sorts of um, assumptions about what politicians care about and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so I had, uh, when I ran to be an MLA, I was prepared for it to really suck. <laughs> I was prepared for being a politician to just suck ass. Um, <laughs> and in part because also I was prepared to to serve in opposition. And I thought that I would spend my entire term just yelling at a brick wall about the things that my community needed and never having anyone um, actually listen. Mm-hmm. And it didn't end up, it didn't turn out that way at all. 
Um, and part of it is probably that, that my party was able to form government. Mm-hmm. And, and I was able to work with a whole team of people who have uh, very similar values and principles to me who also care very, very much about uh, about the people of British Columbia. And, and we managed to make a lot of wonderful changes very quickly to too many for me to be ever be able to list on my own, just sitting somewhere. Sure. Um, and while it's not easy, it turns out that when you have a government that wants to make changes, it can, and it can do it quite quickly. And that was a really pleasant surprise for me. And I'll, I'll say this. I think there is something special about this current provincial government. And I know I've cited him a few times already, but one thing you should know about Mo Senior is he is a political cynic to the end, right? He he thinks everything is corrupt and, and everyone's just in it for themselves. And he was commenting to me, and this was a, a comment I, I passed forward in a phone call to David Eby. He was telling me that he's never been so happy with any government in his life as much as he is happy with this current provincial government. And that's a lot coming from him because he just immediately, I mean, you want to talk about biases and and subconscious or conscious biases. His thing is like government, ah, it's corrupt. But, you know, he sees a lot of value in this, in this government. And I think you, you convert someone like that to seeing or what he perceives to be government working for people. And I think it does say a lot. Yeah, I I think so too. And I'm proud of the work that we've done, but I'm even prouder of the recognition from every member of the BC government and all of my caucus members that we aren't done mm-hmm. and there's more to do. Uh, and every time we accomplish something, every time we bring in some positive change, we bring it in not as, okay, now we're done, you know, let's just wash our hands and, <laughs> and walk away. Um we see it as um, now Now we have that and there's more. There's yeah. more to do after that. Um, and I think that's really important uh, because once a government gets complacent about the improvements that it needs to make, I think that it, it, runs, its, it runs out its usefulness to the public. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about accomplishments. Whenever the next election is going to be, probably next year, probably when it's slated to happen, what are you going to be most proud of in terms of your personal accomplishments? Like, what are you going to take back to North Vancouver Lonsdale and personally say, hey, I did this. It's not just the things that my party and the government did. Here are some major things that I had a hand in accomplishing. Well, I mean, everything that this government has accomplished wouldn't have happened if if you weren't sitting there, sure. Yeah. See, so, so I do feel c- good about, you know, um, uh, being a part of all of that. But having said that, I also want to make clear that I don't think that I personally did um, anything on my own. Mm-hmm. I, I have an incredible team here. Um, I have an incredible community. And I'm supported every day by by the voters who voted for me and enable me to do this work for them. Mm-hmm. So everything that I'm I might have said that I accomplished it it really could not have happened without community support. And I mean to answer your to, to make this answer not too flaky, <laughs> I'll I'll uh, 
I will bring up the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project and mm-hmm. the Rapid Transit Feasibility Study. Uh, I'm, I am really proud of how our community has enabled that discussion because when I was running in late 2016, early 2017, I remember that the that transportation was the number one topic on the North Shore, but most of the conversation centered around more bridges for cars, more space for cars. Right. Uh, and public transit as a conversation hadn't, as a potential solution or as a, an important aspect of, of a solution for the North Shore, hadn't really broken through in the in the public consciousness, I think. And there were people talking about it, but it wasn't the the central topic. And mm-hmm. I think that that conversation has totally shifted over the last three years. I actually remember, I remember when I was first elected, one of the things I did was uh, uh, I sat down with MLA Jane Thornthwaite over in, in North Vancouver Seymour. Uh, we sat down in the dining room of the BC legislature to have a conversation about what our shared goals were, because, you know, we have to work together in order to to serve the community out here on the North Shore. And one of the one of the goals that I shared with her, I told her that what I would really like to do during this time, during this term, is to get the North Shore on the map for a rapid transit line mm-hmm. of some sort. Uh, to just pour, put the North Shore on the map with rapid transit. And I think that we are definitely on our way there. With the rapid transit feasibility study that is currently underway now, by about uh, end of June, we should have a, a pretty solid idea of the te- best technically feasible route uh, for a fixed link rapid transit line connecting the North Shore to the rest of Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And that will feed into TransLink's 2050 plan uh, and and we'll move from there. But I think it's really exciting. And I want to thank my community for enabling that conversation once more because it is hard. It's hard to move away from the idea that everybody should have a personal vehicle and that there should be enough space on the road for every single car that ever wants to drive anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more, it, it's not a, well, it, it's more challenging to, to get people to think of public transit as the way forward. And, and the North Shore has done that. And we'll get into that a, a little more, but I have to say, I love that you gave Jane Thornthwaite a little credit because I feel like she's always asking for it anytime you get a little shine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've learned a lot about Jane over the last three years and I'm yeah. really glad. I'm, I'm glad that she's on board with public transit now. She, she definitely is. I don't know if the conversation was, uh, and I don't know whether her advocacy involved a lot of public transit before, uh, that conversation that I had with her, um, mm-hmm. where I, where I told her that my goal was to get rapid transit on the map, but it helps. It really does help to have um, elected officials from different parties also care about public transit. It's it's way harder to get those kinds of policies through if it's only seen as a partisan issue. Yeah. So I'm glad that I, I know that she supports public transit now. Um, and, and I'm glad for that. And I want to be really clear. I love Jane. I sat on her riding association for a couple of years, and I voted for her every time that she ran for MLA because of that personal 
relationship, but uh, she's well aware of why I let my BC Liberal membership expire, and and so is Andrew Wilkinson. I, t- I told him as well. So I just want to make that clear <laughs> that I love Jane. I think she does. She's she works hard. When we're talking about transit, I feel like a lot of this stuff goes over people's heads. When we look at instep, I want to zoom out a little bit because I want to get your vision for what rapid transit on the North Shore looks like, but explained to a layperson like myself. You know, I don't know anything about planning or transportation or, or anything like that. How do you explain it to me in terms of what the vision is? What instep is? Or you mean what the vision is for the North Shore? Your vision for the North Shore. Yeah, let, let's separate it from instep, I guess. Okay. Um, I mean, my vision for the North Shore was largely uh, enabled by the work that happened um, through instep. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what's important to me is that our public, our transportation network, overall transportation system, actually works. Not that whether it uh, follows my ideological, you know, preferences or not. And so INSTEP as a project was effectively a, um, a research and planning project mm-hmm. that brought together experts, uh, engineering and planning experts, um, and collected all sorts of trip data as to how people move around and the types, the ways that they move around, when they moved around and so forth, and took all of that information and analyzed it and and ran it through uh, a, a number of uh, a number of you know I don't know different types of analysis to determine what the best solutions were for the North Shore solutions that would actually work that we could afford that would make things better um, and and so forth and overwhelmingly I mean to be fair I knew. I, I probably knew where INSTEP was already headed because the science on it is is clear. We know that if we prioritize public transit, active transportation, and um, other micro forms of um, other forms of trans- transportation aside from single occupancy vehicles, mm-hmm. that you end up with a more robust system that can handle more people with less space. Mm. So, like, we've seen this. Uh, played out over and over, all over the world. And it was not a surprise at all that INSTEP followed that same trajectory. So what we want on the North Shore is a transportation system that enables people to get to where they need to go uh, in in an equitable way. And um, what does equitable mean? It means you know, that it doesn't, uh, that is, it isn't too expensive, that it doesn't harm people who have less money, um, that it isn't harming the environment, uh, that is accessible for people so that, uh, whether you have a disability or not, you're able to, to move around easily. Mm -hmm. But the key here is that we want to focus on the movement of people and, and goods as well. So people and goods, not necessarily the vehicles that carry them. Right. So, Cars take up a huge amount of space, uh, whether they're carrying five people or even just one person. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure required to enable um, every single person to travel in a car is immense. It's it's just in, enormous. I mean, I remember the Lower Lynn um, interchange project, the Highway 1 interchange project on the North Shore, when 
that project was underway, we got so many emails and calls from residents who were shocked by how much clear cutting it took yeah. in order to actually build that thing. Like yeah. entire swaths of forests were just leveled. Yeah. And it's because that's how, that is how much space it takes for, for a lot of this roadway infrastructure. And so it's incumbent on us to make sure that we maximize the use of the roadway space that we already have. Mm-hmm. Um, the other challenge that we have out here on the North Shore that we need to address, which isn't strictly a transportation challenge, but impacts it for sure, is that our transportation challenge is very much tied to our housing challenge as well. People can't afford to live close to where they work, and so they commute, which means that they're spending longer distances on the roads, in their cars, or, or other public other transportation systems. And so when we see an uptick, and I mean, the caveat, of course, is we're talking about all this pre-COVID-19 because transportation patterns have changed drastically sure. yeah. since COVID-19. Yeah. But, but pre-COVID-19, we were seeing an uptick in, in the number of cars crossing over the second Noros Bridge. And a lot of it corresponded with not so much the increase in population on the North Shore, but the increase of jobs. So we've actually been growing. We were, prior to COVID-19 again, we were actually seeing more jobs being created than we were, um, than we were, we were growing jobs faster than we were growing working aged people on the North Shore base. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, again, all of this is pre-COVID-19. We don't know what is going to happen moving forward in terms of the trip. Uh, the kind of trips that we're going to see on the roads. However, I do still strongly believe in public transit as as an important part of that system moving forward, because even if we don't need the as many trips as we did before, because maybe there's less activity, we do definitely have to think about the environment. And we know that public transit produces fewer GHGs per person, or well-used transit system produces fewer GHGs per person per trip than than your gas car. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about COVID. I can't let you go. I know we're way over time, but I have some questions about COVID, of course. Outside of Adrian Dix and the Premier, it's really hard to find a BC politician who has done so much to communicate with the public on COVID-19 resources as you. Were you tasked with these things, whether it's the website you created that compiled all the resources that people might need, whether it's your social media communication? I mean, you're even on a singing tour as well. Did you ask permission or did you just go ahead and do these things? Um, I did what I thought was needed in order to communicate what is otherwise an extremely stressful, confusing time for uh, for the commun- community members. Mm-hmm. So during the first couple of weeks, I remember how fast the news was flowing. Things were moving so quickly. Yeah. New supports were being rolled out. New rules were being rolled out. Um, if I, as an MLA, who basically spends every waking moment of my day um, with uh, looking into provincial politics, if I could barely keep it straight in my head, I couldn't imagine how challenging it would have been for a you know single mother of three kids who also has to work during the day like it 
it was too much news. Mm-hmm. Um, it was important news, but it was too much for the average person to be able to to absorb. And so uh, the creation of that website, the the bulletins and so forth, that was something that that I put together in order to help my community understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. And it's a great resource. It's just simplifies the navigation through all the resources that are out there in such a simple way in a time that is confusing. I mean, I know for my day job, you know, there are resources that we were looking at and it's, it feels or it felt otherwise quite scattered. So it's a big deal in terms of the website that you did. Well, thank you. Uh, We do get a lot of good feedback on it, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'd like to acknowledge that everybody each person will have, um, they respond to information in different ways. So my website might not be the best resource for everyone. Some sure. some folks will definitely prefer um, the fantastic um, official government BC website where it's a little bit more segmented. You can find the inf- specific information that you're looking for. Like if you're sick, what do you do? Um, I'm trying to get my business back up. What? Where do I go? Mm-hmm. Um, that's also a useful format for folks. Um, my format is probably has more probably has more to do with my background as an engineer than anything else, because it was the kind of format that I would have appreciated if I was not an MLA, um, and I thought that that other folks might also appreciate it too. Sure. Will the government be looking at long-term care facilities in terms of how to fix them? And if the increase of privatized facilities led to gaps in protecting both residents and workers, because I feel like, and please excuse my French, I feel like a lot of people are pissed off and they're pointing the finger at privatized facilities, some of which I think are even foreign owned. And there are a lot of people questioning why these are not owned by the government and why they're not for profit. Well, I mean, I think that what's clear is that the care provided, uh, particularly directly to residents in long-term care and people in acute care facilities by CareAids, is something that is really, really important. And that CareAids deserve to be supported and respected. Mm -hmm. And I don't know... I actually, I, I'm, I can with confidence say that care aides have not been respected in this province for a while. Um, I don't think that we really need to look into it. I, I, I personally know, I, as in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. I believe that the privatization of healthcare and the introduction of profit motive into healthcare is absolutely a problem. Uh, and that it has led to gaps in protecting residents and their workers, no mm-hmm. doubt. It, there's a long history um, around long-term care centers, uh, political history long, around long-term care centers here in BC. And it started with two bills, Bill 29 and 94, which were introduced in 2001 by a previous government. And You won't even take them by name, Bowen? Oh, right. <laughs> you know, I mean... We started off so spicy. Oh, I, I mean, yes, you're right. It was the BC Liberals. It's, I, I guess I'm trying, I appreciate 
what today's BC Liberals like, Norm Letnick and, and his team, and how the MLAs today have really cooperated with mm-hmm. the BC government. Um, and in fighting COVID-19. I think that that has actually been such a huge, important part of our success here in BC that opposition parties and government have decided to put down some of the uh, more stabby aspects of our politics and work together for the betterment of of British Columbia and to get us through this health crisis. And so I don't want to be too hard on the, uh, the MLAs that are there helping us do that today. But we do absolutely have to acknowledge that a policy change by the BC Liberals back in 2001 that resulted to, in the layoff of some 10,000 workers in that field, care mm-hmm. aides and cleaners and, and food service workers. Um, and also we saw as a result of those bills, the remaining workers saw their wages drop down to minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with those with those bills, healthcare had healthcare workers had fewer rights and were singled out for special negative treatment, um, so that every time a contractor changed, salaries were reduced. Right. And this has been, of course, devastating to the healthcare workers, but also has been devastating to the seniors who depend on those workers for care. Mm-hmm. And, and we know today that today healthcare workers, well, actually, prior to the pandemic pay that we put out. But let's say um, pre-COVID-19, healthcare workers, cleaners, care aides, kitchen workers were making less money than they were 20 years ago because wow. of those bills. And despite, wow. and despite those low wages, in 2017, when we took over as government, fully 91% of long-term care centers were not staffed enough to provide the minimum number of hours that the BC government itself set as a standard. A whopping <laughs> 91% of care homes failed to meet the Ministry of Health's staffing guideline of 3.36 hours of care per senior per day. <laughs> so we can't deny that that history has had an impact on how we've been able to handle the COVID-19 pandemic and how, and we can't deny that that has had an impact on care and long-term facilities. But work uh, to fix this has been underway since we formed government, beginning with the repeal of those two pieces of legislation, uh, which has already happened. Uh, During COVID-19, we saw Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry Institute single-site work rules where, because Part of the challenge was that some of these workers were making weren't making enough money to support their families off of one job. They were working multiple jobs, right. so working multiple sites, which of course increases the risk of transmission of diseases like COVID nineteen. Uh, and then, of course, there's the pandemic pay that was announced recently that will help top up some of these uh, very very important workers' wages. There's a lot more work to be done for sure, and. I can say that Minister of Health Adrian Dix knows, uh, there's no one who knows better than Minister of Health Adrian Dix where, like how, where the gaps are and how important it is that we actually f- fix them with haste. He's doing his best and I, I'm proud of the work that he's done so far. Absolutely. Uh, and given that there's this long history, at least two decades worth, or almost two decades worth of history behind where we are today. 
Do you feel like this was the biggest systemic failure in terms of how the COVID crisis hit this province? You know, I think it's maybe too early for us to tell um, because we're not out of it yet. Mm-hmm. We may have we may have prevented a total disaster um, here in British Columbia so far, but COVID nineteen is is still with us. It's still in our communities. Um, a lot less of it, of course, but it's definitely still in the world. Where there's no vaccine, there's no uh, there's no cure, and so there's a long way yet before we start to before we start to say definitively what the what the biggest systemic failure is. Um, but certainly, I think that what all of this has demonstrated is the importance of a strong public health care system. Mm-hmm. And in particular, one where health is not at odds with profit-making motives. Yeah. What a treat. This is a formality because everyone's listening because they want to hear you. But how do people follow you? How do they connect with the resources that you've posted online? Please plug uh, anything you'd like in terms of keeping in touch with what you're up to. Sure. I am on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can find me just by searching my name, B-O-W-I-N-N. Last name is M-A. And the COVID-19 resources are on my MLA site, which is bowenmamla.ca. Bowen, I am always in awe anytime an elected official wants to sit down with me and give me this amount of time and when they genuinely wear it on their sleeve and they don't mind dumbing things down for me. So I'm not going to echo exactly what Mo Senior said, but I think as a fellow millennial, you're blazing the path for that next generation and what's expected of them and how they can change the political culture to make it more accessible and to make it more human, regardless of the political stripes. So I do want to thank you for your time. And of course, I I wish you and yours the best of health and comfort in these very unprecedented times. So please be well and keep up the great work. Thanks, Mo. Thank you so much. People, did we go over time? Well, of course we went over time because why not? She is the BCMLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale. Mo Senior says she is unbeatable. She is, of course, Bowen Ma. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>